Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sunup. The Daily Sunup podcast is a conversation with the Colorado Sun. See our trust indicators at coloradosun.com slash ethics. It's Thursday, February 29th. Today, leap into the future with our temperature episode where we focus on the potential of hydrogen beneath our feet and why we haven't fulfilled our potential with telehealth. Before we begin, whether you're buying a new home, taking a loan to purchase your first car, or putting money away for a rainy day, banking doesn't need to be complicated. Above all else, Alpine Bank wants you to achieve your dreams. It's that simple. For 50 years, our focus has been on you, and for the next 50 and beyond, that won't change. Because a better tomorrow for our customers starts with helping their dreams come true today. Learn more about Alpine Bank and its services at alpinebank.com or stop in and see us. Now let's go back in time with some Colorado history. On Leap Day 1824, Antoine Robodeau seized the opportunity to seek wealth in Mexico, leveraging the nascent Santa Fe Trail for economic ties between the United States and Mexico. He aimed to profit from the fur trade, eventually leading expeditions into present-day western Colorado, where he engaged in lucrative trade with the Utes. Robodeau built a prominent trading empire, establishing Fort Umcompadre and additional posts, thriving on the exchange of pelts for global goods. However, shifting fashions and territorial pressures led to the decline of his empire by the mid-1840s. After contributing to the U.S. conquest of New Mexico and California during the Mexican-American War, Robodeau retired, leaving a legacy memorialized by Fort Umcompadre's reconstruction in 1990. Before we continue, thanks for listening to The Daily Sunup from the Colorado Sun. Please take a moment to rate and review us in your podcast player. Tell us what you think of the show, share your ideas, and help us reach new listeners. Thank you. Next, our feature story. Well, hi, everyone. Happy Thursday. Uh, welcome to another edition of our Daily Sun Up Reporter Chats. I am John Ingold. I'm the healthcare reporter with the Colorado Sun. And uh, joining me, as always, is my colleague, Michael Booth, uh, who covers climate and environment. And Mike and I, uh, jointly, we write a really great newsletter called The Temperature that comes out every week on Wednesdays. So if you're interested in uh, receiving that, uh, you can sign up to become a Premium Sun member and you'll be able to get that, plus all our other uh, really great uh, premium newsletters. So, hey, Mike, how are you? Hey, John. It's Science Thursday, so we're ready. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we'll kick things off here. I want to ask you about um, some sort of exciting news going on with the, the, the first element, hydrogen, and uh, its potential for... Uh, used to help fight climate change emissions. So why don't you talk about that? See, I thought I was supposed to be the expert. I couldn't even remember that hydrogen was the first element. So you Number first, one. You scooped me on that one. That might be breaking news. But yes, there is some interesting stuff going on with hydrogen. There have been talking about hydrogen as an alternative clean fuel for some time. And we've written and talked about on the podcast some different ways you can do that. You can create hydrogen in some green ways, in some not so green ways, and that will be coming to a tank, an automobile tank somewhere near you sometime in the next couple of years. They're actually building some hydrogen filling stations for cars that have been converted to that kind of hydrogen. But what this is talking about is a school of mines and a bunch of private companies uh, with the help of the 
federal government under the U.S. Geological Survey getting together to say that there is an enormous supply of hydrogen that doesn't need to be created above ground. It's actually sitting underground in much the same way that pools of other carbon in the form of oil or natural gas have been sitting and have been exploited for decades now. And there is a way to tap into those underground formations of hydrogen, and that they believe that there are now new technologies that will help them find the best pockets that can be brought out of the ground at a cost-efficient price. And so the School of Mines is teaming up with these private companies and the geological survey, and they will be working on some joint ventures that involve the technology and the techniques in the hope of creating this sort of bank of knowledge that then they can exploit and not just you know decades from now, but in the next couple of years, they do hope that there is technology available that will allow them to do this. They call it gold hydrogen because it's so it's in such enormous quantities uh, compared to trying to make it from scratch above ground that it could really change the dynamic of renewable energy and of cleaner energy because hydrogen, when it's burned properly, uh, leaves no carbon residue that goes in the atmosphere. So some exciting developments in where this research could go and the fact that the School of Mines, which is expert in so many things underground, would also be a leader in this field. Yeah, you, you mentioned gold hydrogen. One of the the things I've been learning from your reporting is all the different uh, color names that get assigned to hydrogen. Of course, hydrogen itself is colorless, so uh, no color to the, the gas itself, but um, different colors that get assigned uh, based on how it's produced. Right, so green hydrogen to review a bit is taking water, splitting it so that you end up with oxygen and hydrogen. And the way you split it in a clean way is to use renewable clean electricity to provide that power that provides the splitting. Then you take that hydrogen, you put it in a tank, for example, in a heavy vehicle or even in a passenger car, and it runs a fuel cell in that car that converts it back into electricity that runs an electrical engine. And so that's a green way to do it. Um, pretty complicated, but at least it, it results in nothing but water vapor coming out the tailpipe. Uh, blue hydrogen and gray hydrogen are not quite so great, even though that's most of what's going on right now in the field. That's taking a chemical process um, using ammonia and other fuels, natural gas in particular, to create the hydrogen. And so you still are using methane and natural gas. It creates carbon emissions and while it is somewhat more efficient than gasoline, it is not great for the climate overall. So that's given the blue and gray colors. Um, now, this gold color, a whole new category that we'll be talking about in the future. And let me ask you, when it comes for uh, actually drilling for this gold hydrogen, there there's already a, a sense of where there might be some of this underground, where, where might be good places to go drill for this. And it doesn't look like Colorado is actually high up on the list. No, for all the carbons that we do have underground, uh, apparently hydrogen is not pooled easily under Colorado and most of the West. So we ran a map of the temperature. We hope people will subscribe to the temperature so they can see this stuff in person or go to coloradosun.com. William Allstatter will be writing more about hydrogen in coming days at the sun. And we hope you can die, take a deeper dive in that way. But the map that we ran shows that there's a line running kind of from the Midwest in Iowa, Illinois, running northeast a bit up through the upper Midwest along the Minnesota-Wisconsin line, and then underneath some of the Great Lakes, where there should be some carbon resources, they believe, some hydrogen resources that are easily gettable. And then there's another 
area on the Atlantic seaboard, that the Atlantic Plains, they call it, that is also an area they think they can exploit. And of course, we'll be looking all over the world. Uh, we want hydrogen as close to the place you would use it as possible. So they'll be looking all around the world for other pockets that are easily exploitable. So uh, people can check out that map. I don't think they need to worry about drilling rigs in their backyard anytime soon, but it could happen sooner than we thought possible, just uh, even a few months or a couple of years ago. So John, let's turn while we're talking to some reporting that you've been doing lately about the use of telehealth, which is always meant to be kind of the boon in the future for people who are remote and need better access to different kinds of healthcare, especially specialty healthcare. But the statistics, the people who can compile the statistics on how it's actually used in Colorado are not impressed with how it's being used so far in rural Colorado and feel there's some huge gaps in what people are able to use from telehealth. Yeah, kind of some interesting insights that came out uh, just in the last week on this. So telehealth, of course, is uh, virtual visits, telephone visits, or uh, video visits with doctors. And, you know, we write a lot about and been doing a lot of reporting about the uh, struggles that we see with uh, rural hospitals and rural medical providers, uh, the struggles with access to specialty care, especially in, in rural areas. And so one of the, the potential solutions here is to expand the use of telehealth in rural areas. It um, you know, gives people greater access to these specialists there without them having to actually travel and leave their communities. And uh, it gives uh, the doctors a chance to, to book more visits with patients in rural areas without uh, needing to spend the time traveling there. And uh, so th there's you know sort of seen as, as some promise in this being at least a, a little bit of a, a stopgap solution to uh, provider shortages in rural areas. Um, but we had uh, a new analysis that came out by this organization called the Center for Improving Value in Healthcare which um, the name doesn't really capture exactly what they do. They manage something called the all-payer claims database in Colorado, which collects uh, health insurance claims that are filed by uh, a number of payers. And uh, they have over a billion claims in this system, and that gives them the ability to really drill down and do some, some pretty complex data analysis on how healthcare is actually being practiced in Colorado. So they, uh, working in conjunction with the state uh, office called the Office of eHealth Innovation, wanted to do a deep dive on uh, telehealth and how it was being used. And one of the things they looked at was uh, which areas in the state are using telehealth the most. And they looked at uh, the rate of usage. So it's, it's uh, standardized based on the population. And what they ended up finding was that uh, actually urban areas, that, that areas along the front range often had the highest rates of telehealth use. And among the, the top 20 counties with the lowest rates of telehealth use, the, the large majority of them were rural counties. Only Mesa County would not be considered a, a rural county. And even Mesa County has some pretty rural areas in it. So uh, it, it was kind of a surprising thing. I, I would have expected to have seen higher rates of telehealth use in rural areas and maybe a little bit lower in urban areas where, uh, you know, there's a little bit uh, closer access to, to some of these telehealth uh, uh, services or close to, to medical services, but it ended up being the opposite. It is disturbing because it's been held out there with so much promise for so long with everything from mental health visits, which if you're in a rural area with not only bad access, but the stigma 
of driving into a place where everybody might recognize you and getting mental health care. Telehealth has great possibilities there. Uh, dermatology with a specialty where you might not have a dermatologist and, you know, with, within 50 or 100 miles from you, but they can see a lot in telehealth. Um, following up on stroke care, there's a lot of things that they have said are great possibilities, but it just doesn't seem to be happening as much. Some ideas on why that might be, uh, people not having the broadband connections they need, uh, providers not being um, as educated on what the technology they need. What are people thinking about why this is turning out this way? Yeah, so the analysis really didn't try to dive in to find an answer there, okay. but it did note some correlations between um, some some certain conditions and lower uses of telehealth. And one, of course, would be uh, you know no access to a computer or no access to the internet, uh, no access to a smartphone. Those kinds of things would obviously be um, sort of negatively correlated with uh, telehealth use. That the more likely you are to have those things, the more likely you would be to to use telehealth services, and, and the inverse being true as well. So you know, I, I think there are some technology challenges in rural areas, and, and maybe higher rates of uh, lack of of quality internet access uh, that could uh, be a barrier here. Uh, veteran status was also correlated with uh, lower rates of telehealth use. Now. That could be uh, specific to where people are trying to receive treatment if it's if it's through the VA. But um, yeah, I, I think a lot of things to, to look into here. Another thing this analysis did, though, is it looked at potential barriers to expanding the use of telehealth. And one thing it found is that uh, payment rates, reimbursement rates, what, what insurers tend to pay providers for telehealth visits tend to be lower than what they would be for comparable uh, in-person visits. And also there's a higher denial rates of coverage for telehealth visits versus in-person visits. So it could also be that there's a situation where providers, uh, you know, maybe aren't quite seeing the benefit in providing telehealth as aggressively as they could because they feel like they're not going to get paid for it as, as much as they would for an in-person visit. Interesting. Well, those are things that uh, government regulators could do something about if they're listening uh, in terms of uh, Medicaid and other public payment rates, um, in terms of regulating insurers to make sure that they're treating telehealth equally whenever possible. So appreciate your reporting on that. Yeah, of course. Well, thanks everybody for joining us for another edition of the Temperature Podcast. Uh, come back with more topics on climate and health next week. If you're looking for other answers on politics and the legislature and how things work in Colorado behind the scenes, we urge you to join a free event tonight at six o'clock at the Denver Press Club. You can sign up for it online at coloradosun.com with our politics experts. Our politics staff will be there to network, to mix, to answer questions that your family might be tired of talking to you about, but they never tire of it because they're experts in it. And it's another service that the Sun provides to try to promote democracy through better information. So check it out. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. The city of Denver is closing four emergency shelters as it dials down spending on migrant aid. Mayor Mike Johnston says the move will shave $60 million from the estimated $180 million it will take to provide shelter and other services for the city's migrant community through next year. Nearly 40,000 migrants have arrived in Denver over the past 12 months, most from Venezuela. Nearly 2,400 are living on city-funded hotel rooms and other shelters. 
The mayor's announcement comes as the city faces scrutiny for cutting spending on parks and recreation and other city services to offset spending on migrants. Colorado legislators are seeking to close loopholes in a 2022 ban on forever chemicals in many consumer products, saying the cost to filter out PFAS is overwhelming water treatment agencies. Senate Bill 81 would broaden Colorado's ban starting January 1st to include everything from kitchen cookware to dental floss to tampons. It would also require labeling of rain gear made with PFAS. Gasoline distributors, refineries, and other chemical plants would also lose their exemption for using PFAS-laden firefighting foam starting next year. PFAS have been linked to a variety of health threats. Lawmakers say other states have moved faster to regulate the chemicals. An administrative law judge has found that Colorado's largest private sector union violated federal labor laws by refusing to bargain in good faith with its own union-represented workers. Officials with United Food and Commercial Workers Local 7 also invited workers to resign rather than complain about working conditions and tried to persuade employees to drop their association with their union, another violation of labor laws. The findings are roiling some in Colorado's union community who fear how the report may reflect on the broader labor movement. The union represents 23,000 people who work at grocery stores, meatpacking facilities, food processing plants, and other workplaces in Colorado and Wyoming. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Now, a quick message from our team. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. My name is Jason Blevins. I'm the outdoors writer here at the Colorado Sun, co-founder of the Colorado Sun. Um, I'm on the uh, weekly podcast with David Krause every Monday. And I also write a weekly newsletter. comes out every Thursday. It's called The Outsider. Um, take a look at uh, each issue has sort of early glimpses of stories. I got stuff on housing, high country business, high country culture, public lands, uh, public land managers, kind of just about anything kind of interesting and happening on the Western Slope. Try to get into it. Ski industry stuff. Um, I invite you to come check it out. It's one of the many newsletters we have at the Colorado Sun. Um, head to coloradosun.com slash join and become a member and support the Colorado Sun. Appreciate you guys listening. Thanks.